0: It was late October of 1071 and Hereward was out with a column of his rebel fighters foraging and pillaging Norman allied settlements for supplies. There were other columns of active rebels in the Fens, including one currently marching towards the turncoat community at Soem. But it wasn't enough. The Norman siege had taken an enormous toll on the rebels. Starvation was setting in among the ranks, and if they were going to be able to withstand whatever William had planned, they needed food. And Hereward wasn't the kind of leader to stay in the back during a crisis. So he was out on the march, along with his trusted companions, moving carefully through little-known paths, seeking to gather, steal, or loot anything edible they could find. In the midst of this, a familiar face appeared in the wild. It was Edwina, son of Ordgar, a monk from Ely. He was a faithful comrade, and he had accompanied Hereward on missions in the past. It was good to see a friendly face, and so they waved him over. But as he got closer, the look on his face told them that something was wrong. And once he joined them, they were overcome with dread as Edwinna told them everything. Under Abbot Thurstan, the monks had met in secret with William and struck a bargain to save the monastery. In exchange for peace, they revealed the defenses of Ely and gave him details on how to defeat the rebellion. And right now, in Hereward's absence, the monks were back on the island convincing the army to surrender to William. And William was on the way. It was over. And Winna told Harroward and the band that they had to surrender. It was done. Yeah, but Harroward was English. And surrender just wasn't in his vocabulary. Yeah. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 425, The Fall of Ely. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Amy, Joseph, and Robin for signing up already. How had it come to this? What had happened? Things were difficult, but the rebellion had been making headway. I mean, sure, William, now that he was back in England, was tromping through the countryside and slapping up forts wherever he could. And sure, he was tightening the net around Ely. But those plans had all been limited. Even now, hungry and hemmed in, the rebels were launching attack after attack against William and his allies. Orderic, version E of the Chronicle, and the Liber Eliensis all report numerous rebel strikes. But now, with Edwin's reports, it was confirmed William wasn't just tightening the net around Ely. The usurper king had an inside man, and this turncoat was going to help him destroy Harreward and his whole merry band. Those forts weren't defensive. They were preparations. William was planning on cornering them like a hind in one of his fancy man hunting trips. Abbot Thurstan's betrayal had given William the edge he needed. The abbot had used his position of trust within the rebellion to destroy it. Weeks earlier, when William was meeting with the turncoat abbot, we're told the king was overcome with, quote, unaccustomed joy, end quote, as the monk revealed Ely's defenses and weaknesses. We're told that the king was so excited he acted as if he had already won the war. But he hadn't. He still needed to connect A to B. Knowing how to take the isle wasn't enough. To pull this off, William needed a combined force of infantry and cavalry. The trouble, though, was that according to the Lieber, he was having difficulty finding any men who were willing to actually storm the island. Because everyone remembered how Operation Swamp Stallion had ended— you know, with large numbers of the army drowning thanks to his terrible bridge. And then when William launched Operation Marshy Mare, another good chunk of his replacement army had also drowned, though this time with a twist, because a lot of his men had also burned to death while others were shot full of arrows. So now that William was trying to sell his knights on Operation Fenn's filly, well, his soldiers were understandably skeptical. And William's argument of, nah, bro, I've got this figured out. This time, we're going to charge right at them and take all their fortifications head-on. Well, it turns out that wasn't as convincing as it probably sounded in his head. So the Lieber tells us that William turned to the only tool he had left in his toolbox. It was one he's already had to resort to quite a few times. He promised them that, if the soldiers would fight on his behalf, he would give them riches and honors. And luckily for William, knights quite liked riches and honors. And so in the end, he did manage to assemble an army, quote, to the best of his capability, end quote, which I got to say, even a thousand years later is a pretty good bit of shade in the record. And actually, his capability to motivate and assemble an army really does seem to have been limited here because, quote, the Bretons and others had deserted because of the enormity of the operation. They wished to go back to their native land, end quote. William was using every means at his disposal to get men to fight in his name. And still, we told that in response, quite a lot of them pleaded with William to be released from this suicide mission. And unfortunately, this was William. So when they refused to assemble voluntarily, he simply commanded their obedience and then prevented their ships from leaving England before the job was done. They would fight whether they wanted to or not. Now forced into this situation, the Breton and other reluctant soldiers sullenly assembled as demanded. But they planned to slow walk their advance and stay towards the back. Which, let's be honest, is pretty wise. I mean, the only people who survived Operation Swamp Stallion were the ones at the end of the causeway to hell. So, might as well stay back there. But, as the knights were preparing for their suicidal advance... Others were set to work constructing siege engines. You see, Thurstan had provided quite a bit of useful information, but the isle was still heavily fortified. So if this was going to be successful, they needed to destroy those ramparts. Preferably from afar, with a good number of guards keeping an eye on the marsh. No need to suffer through a surprise barbecue like they did during Operation Marshy Mare. So they had a lot of work ahead of them. But the builders got it done. And thanks to them, William was ready when, somehow, the abbot sent a signal to the king that Hareward was going out into the field on a mission. It was now or never. It was time to attack. Now, generally, before a major assault like this, a commander offers words of support to his army. He encourages them and reminds them of the riches and glories that they will have at the end of this battle. He exaggerates the weakness of the enemy and boasts of how they will fall before the power of this force that's assembled before him that is greater than he's ever seen. These are the sorts of things that a good commander does because they're leaders. But William didn't want to be a leader. William wanted to be William. And so according to the Lieber, William told his army that he expected them to follow his orders. And if they didn't, well, they were cowards and he didn't need them anyway. He said he didn't care what they were gonna do because he was gonna attack Ely regardless of how they felt about him. And he didn't need any weaklings riding his coattails to victory. So on the eve of a battle from which many of his men will never return, King William was berating his army, calling them cowards, and daring them to abandon him. And this was the second time he's recorded doing this. And for a second time, his army accepted it. I don't have an answer for why this worked. And I find it baffling, though there is one idea from modern psychology that might help explain it. Though it's impossible to prove since everyone involved here is long dead. But psychologist Bob Altemeyer, through surveys and experiments, proposes that authoritarian movements, and I think it's plausible that chivalry was an authoritarian cultural movement. Well, they have two main components, leaders and followers. His work demonstrates that the majority of authoritarians have an affinity with authority but aren't actually seeking to be the ultimate authority themselves, meaning that most authoritarians like taking orders, not giving orders. I mean, sure, they might exercise a lesser form of authority in realms where they feel more secure, such as with their children or wives, but in public spaces when dealing with officials to whom they feel an affinity, well, they are remarkably submissive and they prefer it that way. So perhaps a similar phenomenon was going on with chivalry. I don't know, it's just a guess. Again, these guys are all too dead by now to take a survey, but this is the only thing that I've come across that makes sense to me for why the Knights just accepted Bill's abuse rather than, you know, shoving a lance through his gut. I mean, it's not like these guys were opposed to violence. They were pretty used to it, actually. But whatever nightmare psychosocial mechanism was at play here, the men did as they were told, and they began to march towards Ely. But by this point, William's army was all too aware of how dangerous the Fens were. So their advance was cautious and slow. The fact was that... Even during dry spells, the fens would barely support the weight of an average man. And even the slightest bit of rain would turn the fens into streams and quagmires. And this, incidentally, was not a dry spell. It was October. And do you know what happens in English October? Yeah, it rains. A lot. In fact, we're told that the nights were subject to torrents of rain only stopping when it occasionally hardened into hail so as the knights and soldiers and horses were advancing along the twisting causeways they were told there were occasions where the land which once seemed stable would split open and swallow men whole and on top of that the pathways were so narrow and hemmed in by vegetation that the advancing knights regularly lost sight of each other. And sometimes, they couldn't even hear each other over the sounds of the storm that was raging around them. This must be hell. And if it wasn't, then it must be personally protected by God. Because why else would all of nature be conspiring to murder them? And topping the whole pudding off, there weren't just bugs and snakes and leeches in this swamp there were also corpses. This marsh was full of all the men and horses who had died in the rebel raids and who had died in the rebel battles and who had died on poorly constructed causeways. And of course, men who had died in fire. There were a lot of them and they were all still here, rotting. Again, this isn't a poetic flourish on my part. Leofric the deacon tells us he personally saw bodies found in the fens long after the conclusion of this war. And the Liber Eliensis tells us that during this advance, William actually ordered his men to walk across the corpses as bridges. Yeah, this probably was hell. But during their advance, bodies weren't always available to cross. And the Lieber tells us that the fens weren't just marshes and standing water. There were also fast-flowing streams that were so deep that at one point, when William tried to cross one, he was almost completely submerged and barely kept his head above water. Crazy to think how different history could have been if he, you know, just got a foot stuck. But the point is, the approach to Ely was brutal dispiriting, and by the end, William's whole army was consumed by anxiety. I mean, what kind of horrors would they have to deal with once they were actually facing off with the men who chose to live in these surroundings? But finally, at long last, they closed in on the island and reached a position that was closer than anyone in the company had expected. It was at last done. Except, it wasn't. Seeing Ely with his own eyes was disconcerting to say the least. Quote, He came eventually into the neighborhood of the isle, to a marsh of horrific appearance, of infinite depth, festering all around to the depths of its hollow bed. End quote. And if you're a Mary Shelley or Edgar Allan Poe fan, this place sounds awesome. But it's the sort of place that you'd want to spend your time draping delicately over a couch with your poetry, not, you know, trying to invade with an army. So seeing this, William and his army were a bit put out. And that was before they noticed that on the opposite bank, soldiers were taking position behind ramparts built out of peat blocks and other defensive materials. whatever was left of the Norman morale was crushed. We're told William and his army were, quote, greatly discountenanced by the double obstacle, end quote, which is basically just a fancy way of saying they were just super bummed out by the whole scene. so there we have William looking across the water at the assembled rebel army and probably describing it with words that the scribes weren't allowed to write in French or otherwise. Yeah, he was big mad. Because here's the thing. The rebels weren't supposed to be here. And given the description of the landscape, the fast-flowing streams and all, well, it's not even clear where here is. Because it doesn't sound like William had reached Ely yet. So either this was a mistake in the record and the scribes were thinking about earlier rivers that had to be crossed or this confrontation took place at an outpost on the way to Ely, which might explain why the defenses were just peat blocks and nothing more substantial. But whether this was at Ely or just at an outpost, William wasn't expecting any resistance at all on this advance. Abbot Thurstan had promised that he was going to get the commoners to stand down. He had promised that he would ensure that Harreward wouldn't even be at Ely when they attacked. So what the actual f were all these people doing manning battlements and pointing bows and arrows at them? And was Harreward in there somewhere? Well, that, it turns out, is a really good question. You see, according to the Gesta, when Brother Edwinna found Harreward in the field and warned him of the attack, and then asked him to surrender. Hereward had something entirely different in mind. If these monks were willing to sell out the rebellion in exchange for their monastery, well, then the first thing that he, as the leader of the rebellion, needed to do was burn down that f***ing monastery. It wouldn't be the first time they'd set a building on fire, And so help me, it wouldn't be the last either. So Harroword and his companions gathered their weapons and torches, and they began to march to Ely Monastery. Welcome to the find out phase, Edwinna. Realizing how badly he'd miscalculated the situation, Edwinna pled with the rebel leader to change his mind. He'd fought at Harroword's side, and so he was begging him to trust him just one more time. If Hereward wouldn't join the monks in surrender, then he must flee. It would be the only way he would survive, because the king was already at Witchford. And that bit of information, we're told, convinced Hereward that this needed to be handled first. So he sent messengers to one of his other columns, which was on a mission to Soham. And he warned them of what was happening and told them to prepare to withdraw. And the scribes don't mention this, but we know that Terfrida was with Hereward later on, and that she had been with him during this rebellion. So I think there's a good chance that she was either with Hereward on this mission, or that she was with that other column, which could explain the urgency with which the messengers were sent out to that location. After a short time, Hereward's messengers caught up with the column at Soham, but the scouts didn't recognize Hereward's companions, and they feared that they were actually being tracked by the Normans. So they split up and hid. So great was their fear that two of them, afraid they were on the verge of being caught, tried to disguise themselves as monks by shaving each other's hair into tonsures using just their swords. Ouch. But eventually they heard shouts coming through the brush, presumably code words. And the rebels realized that these men had come from Harroward. And once they learned of William's impending attack, they rushed to join their leader. But here's where it gets tricky. The Gesta, which is focused on Harroward and his greatness, seems to gloss over William's assault on Ely, giving us little detail of what was going on during the attack. So while the scribes were willing to take their time and share all kinds of stuff about their main character during the rest of his life, they heavily compressed this key part of the story. And I think you can probably guess why. And it's so bad that it's hard to piece together a timeline about Hereward's activities and where he was located. And the Libra Aliensis isn't much help on this front either choosing instead, like Orderic, to focus on Morcar and Edwin. Version D of the Chronicle does mention the Siege of Ely and includes Hereward's presence, but doesn't give us a clear timeline or any granular detail either. And if it wasn't for Gaimar, I don't think we'd know at all what was going on. But thankfully, he does fill in some gaps. Gaimar tells us that Hereward was there, at the battle, fighting with his comrades, presumably occupying and leading that marshy fortress against William. Though, like all our sources, we also can't know for certain if Gaimar was actually accurate. So in the end, I don't really know what happened here. My best guess is that Harroword was out in the field, and Brother Edwinna felt bad about the impending attack and went to give him a warning. And when he got word... Hereward kind of went apeshit, but he was convinced to set aside his desire to burn down the monastery and instead gathered with his compatriots and organized a defense. And while Abbot Thurstan did hold sway over the commoners, Hereward held more. And so he was able to rally the troops and he brought them to a defensible location to make a stand. And that's how you get the sudden appearance of a fortified marshy outpost manned by reportedly thousands of fighters directly in the path of Williams' advance. But that's just a guess based on my personal attempt to reconcile the records. And without a clear contemporary timeline, it's really impossible to know. But regardless of whether it was Hereward leading the defense or whether it was Morcar, or Wolfrich, or any of the other figures in the rebellion. The fact remained that there were suddenly a ton of rebels taking up defensive positions and preparing to fight the Norman army. But this wasn't William's first rodeo. He'd been dealing with Hereward for quite a while by now. And so he'd learned to expect the unexpected. And that meant that William hadn't just been leading an army through the marsh, He was actually leading the head of a siege train. Those boats that he'd used in Operation Marshy Mare, well, they were still under his control. And they were following behind him. And they were loaded down with catapults and ballista. So rather than trying to swim across the deep waters while getting pelted by English arrows, William had a different plan. He ordered his men to place the siege engines on any patch of dry land they could find and then train their fire on those peat blocks. They were done fighting the enemy's war. They were going to fight this in the Norman manner. They were going to bombard them into dust. Once in position... The order was given, and volley after volley of giant javelins and enormous stones were hurled towards the English defenses. The intent was to soften the English lines and barricades. But that wasn't all they were softening. They were on the fens. They were all on the fens. We're not talking about bedrock and dense clay substrate. We're talking about peat and assorted moss and whatever the hell else was in a swamp. Which meant that even the solid ground that they placed their siege engines on was still pretty spongy. And with every volley, quote, the unstable ground shook, threatening everyone supported by it with drowning, end quote. But William didn't give a shit. He wanted this done now though now was a term that was as soupy as the terrain. Because if the Lieber and the Gesta have the right of it, the fighting took place over the course of a week. Which meant that just this engagement, in fact, just this part of the engagement, probably lasted days. So days of the English weathering whatever William and his men could load onto their war machines. You know, rocks, tree trunks, Horse bodies, whatever, probably anything and everything was flung at them at one point or another. And given how this is described, it sounds like the Normans were in a position that they could endlessly bombard the English without ever having to expose themselves to any sort of counterattack. And as such, I have to wonder why the English held that patch of ground for as long as they did. And my best guess is that they were buying time for whatever was being arranged in the lines behind them, be it a counterattack, a stronger defensive line, or just a chance for people to escape. But whatever the plan was, eventually it appears to either have succeeded or morale broke, because we're told that the English, quote, gave way, end quote. So now the only thing between the Normans and an apparently undefended landing spot was a stretch of water. And they had boats and construction supplies on hand. So William ordered the boats to be brought forward and lashed together. And then he had a platform created on top of it using poles and wicker panels. This was done very quickly. And the Lieber tells us that what they managed to build was, quote, a weak and shaky bridge, end quote. And given all that had happened during previous crossings, you would expect a little caution would be warranted here. But William was in too much of a hurry. The English had retreated and he wasn't gonna lose the momentum. So he ordered his men to rush across the bridge as quickly as they could. And so, quote, a thousand French knights in body armor and helmets, end quote, charged across the shaky little bridge. And somehow, they made it. Or at least, the majority of them did. We aren't told how many, if any, tripped and fell into the water. But I've watched enough Ninja Warrior to be pretty sure that a few of them did. But reaching the opposite shore didn't solve all of their problems. We're told, quote, There still remained for them a difficult struggle out of the pools of water. They scarcely made it in the end, to solid ground through pitfalls and eddies of mud, end quote. And the lever tells us that there, on solid ground, waiting for them, were thousands of rebel fighters. And at long last, the rebels were able to fight their enemy directly. You know ain't gonna die. Now, the numbers that the lever gives us are probably enhanced for dramatic effect portraying the Normans as terribly outnumbered by many thousands of rebels. But given the length of the fighting and the size of the rebellion, this was still probably a very significant fight. The Lieber claims that eventually the English broke and fled the battlefield for a second time. And it says that they fled not because of strategy nor because of loss of morale due to casualties. No, the Lieber clearly taking its cues from Poitiers, claims that the mere sight of William's magnificent face was all that it took to break the will of the English. And I'm not kidding. But pretty face or not, William still needed to reach the central monastery of Ely, which seems like it was functioning sort of as a nerve center for the resistance. So we're told that he and his army, quote, went round the crooked fen paths on a most difficult march, end quote. And yeah, I bet it was a difficult march. This was the rebels' home turf, and they were rebels who were experienced at guerrilla tactics. So this advance was likely hard, bloody, and fraught with terror. But eventually, thanks to the assistance provided by Abbot Thurstan and his brothers, the Normans were able to track their way through the rebel isle until they met the main rebel force, quote, in a place which was terrible beyond all the difficulties which he had previously overcome, end quote. Now, the scribes don't provide us with any more information than that, but I'm getting the sense that the rebels had a plan after all, that they weren't just fighting for the hell of it, but were slowing down the Norman advance so that they could retreat and fortify a location where they would inflict maximum damage to any who attempted to breach it. Orderick, when describing the rebels' holdout, tells us that the site was virtually inaccessible, and it also had easy access to waterways, which could allow them to escape to the sea if needs be. And he adds that the defenses were formidable enough that they could defend themselves there for, quote, a considerable time, end quote. I'm not sure precisely where this location was. And I'm also not sure if we could reliably find it today anyway. The fens were drained centuries ago and landscapes also changed naturally. And beyond that, these records are murky. And for all we know, they were island hopping during these battles. But wherever the rebels were, this place, like Ely, sounds like it was a natural fortress. And I'm not sure how willing the Norman army was to attack yet another natural fortress. So according to Orderic, William sent over a messenger to the rebels and provided them with terms. The king wanted an end to this. And besides, he was well acquainted with one of their leaders, Morcar. The young man had actually been part of William's court, which made him a friend of the king. So if he would simply put down his arms and bring this regrettable situation to a close, well, they could be friends again. More than that, the king would restore Morkar and welcome back to court as a trusted supporter. And the king here was telling the truth. Well, he was telling the truth about one particular portion, that he knew Morkar. That kid was not made for leadership, and he certainly wasn't the kind of person to fight his way out of a tight spot. When under pressure in 1066, he submitted. When he and his brother rebelled in 1068, but things started to go badly, he submitted again. So when terms for submission were sent to Morcar, I'm pretty sure that William was already planning his next move, because this was only gonna end one way. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. On October 27th of 1071, probably in the morning, Morcar, quote, weakly listening to false representations, end quote, agreed to surrender. And the lever tells us that he wasn't alone. Quote, the armed men were let out, first the leaders, then a considerable number of men who were prominent because of their reputation or some mark of distinction, end quote, but not Hereward, According to Florence of Worcester and Gaimar and version D of the Chronicle, Hereward and his companions had escaped. Now, to be clear, the Lieber, and only the Lieber, claimed that actually it was Morcar who escaped and that Hereward had actually fled earlier And also it was Edwin who was captured. Now this contradicts the other records and also doesn't match up with later events. So the more likely explanation for this is the scribes got confused and then maybe recorded Harroward's escape too early. And then when the final stand ended in a surrender, they knew that one of the brothers was captured and someone important escaped. So they just filled in the names as best as they could. That's my best guess for what happened here. But then again, when dealing with the story of Harreward, best guesses are pretty much all we have, which incidentally is what I think the scribes of the Libra were doing as well. This whole story is as murky as the marsh it's played out on. But one thing we can be sure of was that Harreward was not captured by William during that final stand. And now he was on the lamb with his close companions which included a number of his trusted commanders and his wife, Terfrida. And it's quite possible they fled to an island refuge in the north called Wida, which was near Upwell. And it turns out it was a good thing that he fled rather than listening to William's promises of clemency, because you'll never guess what William did following the surrender of the rebel army. Yeah, there wasn't much clemency to go around. Here's what the Lieber says he did with the leadership. Quote, he sentenced some to imprisonment, some to the loss of eyes, hands, or feet, end quote. Now, apparently he didn't mutilate the commoners, which is nice, but then again, it's also probably because he knew that given the great famine, he needed them working in the fields. And as for Morcar, well, he was the one who agreed to stand down with the army in exchange for being welcomed back into court. So what happened to him? Well, Warderick says that William was, quote, apprehensive that Morcar would avenge the evils unjustly inflicted on himself and his countrymen and be the means of raising endless disturbances in his English dominions. He therefore threw him in prison without any distinct charge and committing him to the custody of Roger de Beaumont confined him in his castle all the rest of his life, end quote. Meanwhile, as William's knights carried out the mutilations and imprisonments and God knows what else, well, Abbot Thurstan and his monks returned to the refectory. I mean, that wasn't any of their business. Their part in this was done. And besides, they were safely in the king's good graces thanks to their early collaboration with his forces. And they were also pretty hungry, starving, in fact. And it appears that when William had taken Ely, he brought supplies with him. And those supplies were now available. It was lunchtime, so they went off in search of some nosh. And watching them go, William saw his opportunity. He needed to take care of something. You see, this campaign had been some pretty ugly business, He was responsible for a huge amount of death, not to mention injuries, on both sides of this conflict. He was also responsible for the looting and pillaging of a whole bunch of religious houses and estates, as well as all the injuries and deaths that tend to happen when knights pillage. His men had also kidnapped and basically enslaved a bunch of English monks and sent them to Bank. They'd also outright stolen a bunch of religious lands. Oh, and they'd hired a witch for f**k's sake. So yeah, he needed to sort a few things out with God, which meant going to the shrine of St. Athelthrith, who was the patron saint of all of these people that he had been abusing for months. And then he would be able to set all of this right by praying over the sacred virgin's body and asking for her forgiveness. At least that was what was expected of him. But the trouble with doing something like that is that if he was approached by the monks while he was in there seeking forgiveness, well, he'd be pressured to actually grant it. And he didn't feel like granting it. He was already displeased that he had to promise clemency to that jackass Thurston, And the last thing he wanted to do was promise more forgiveness. He didn't want forgiveness. He wanted retribution. Because he was still mad so so incredibly mad so realizing that the monks were distracted he headed for the church and not wanting to take any chances he ordered his men to lock the doors of the church behind him and stand guard in order to prevent anyone from entering while he was in there so there he was in the holy church of ely expected to make amends with saint athelthrith and ask for her forgiveness but here's the thing. She was English. If she was really so saintly, and if she really did have so much influence with Big J, then why wasn't she born properly as a Norman? This was ridiculous. And besides, William was still mad. So he didn't bother asking her forgiveness. He didn't pray. He didn't even bother to walk up to the shrine. Instead, he just tossed a single gold mark onto the altar. I'm guessing the same way you tip your dealer at the blackjack table. And then he banged on the church door, I assume shouting, I'm finished in French, and then headed back out. And with that bit of English nonsense handled, he was free to get back to good, honest Norman work, namely constructing fortresses. And in short order, he found the perfect spot for a new one, right there within the monks own property a company of knights within their own walls just itching to bludgeon someone well that should keep these monks in line so william told his commanders to assemble work crews from the people of cambridge Huntingdon, and bedford to build it because norman knights would man it but there was no need to waste norman sweat on something that could easily be built by the English. And then he did the same thing at his original base of operations at Aldrith. East Anglia would now be militarized and directly suppressed. And with that handled, William mounted up and returned to the royal encampment at Witchford. And this was all handled so quickly, and William's departure was so swift that the monks weren't even aware of it. So his plan to avoid granting forgiveness worked. But that was also just one part of the plan. Because actually, what he really wanted was retribution. And we're told that the king's childhood friend, Fitzgilbert had been involved in the barring of the church. And now that the king was safely away and couldn't be approached, the commander burst into the refectory and berated the monks assembled there. Shouting, quote, Oh, wretched and deluded men, surely it would not be impermissible to take your luncheon at a different moment while the king is visiting you and standing in your church, end quote. This had the desired effect. The monks leapt from their tables and ran to the church to meet with the king. But of course, the king was long gone. And there was Fitzgilbert watching all of this. Oh dear, you've really done it now. What possessed you to offend and inflict such terrible injury on the king? Especially considering that he had only just recently shown you so much mercy. How dare you? I mean, really, how dare you? And I'm guessing that as the holy men flew into a panic and pleaded with him to speak with the king on their behalf, Fitzgilbert was suppressing a wolfish smile because of course he would speak to the king on their behalf. And it didn't even take long. Witchford wasn't that far. And besides, he had a horse. And honestly, he and the king probably already worked out the details ahead of time anyway. So after a little bit, Fitzgilbert returned. And he told them that they must meet with the king in person and beg for his forgiveness and then find some way to mollify his anger. And so, the turncoat monks of Ely hitched up their robes and rushed to Witchford to meet with the king and beg for his forgiveness for, um... Well, I'm pretty sure no one was entirely certain of what they did. But... It was very clear that this man was incredibly violent, had a lot of incredibly violent friends, and he was right now very mad. So might as well just make peace and apologize, which is what they did. And while William was fine with the apology and the implicit acceptance of guilt that it contained, naturally, it wasn't enough. And after much discussion in court, it was decided that the monks could have his forgiveness if they paid him 700 marks of silver. Blatant extortion. But what are you gonna do? This guy had a bunch of horse bros looking for somewhere delicate to put their lances. No thank you. So the monks rushed back to Ely, trying to find anything valuable to make payment, which was actually pretty difficult because William had already looted the place. And apparently it was a quite thorough plundering because we're told, quote, the plentiful goods found there compensated many times over for the horses that had been killed and all inconveniences of this sort, end quote. And I love how these guys are just worried about the cost of their horses. I mean, Sir Ralph had drowned to death while on the sheep pontoon, but whatever. That's just business. But let's talk about the real tragedy here. Glitterhoof was an expensive filly. Like I've said many times before, the Normans were basically psychopathic accountants. But yeah, Ely had been pretty thoroughly looted, but some stuff had escaped the notice of the knights. And so the monks gathered, quote, whatever precious articles there were in the church, crosses, altars, reliquaries, gospel books, chalices, patents, lavers, stoops, straws, bowls, and gold and silver dishes in order to pay in full the specified sum of money, end quote. And then they brought it all to Cambridge, hoping it would satisfy the king's demands. And they handed it over and the king's servants began to weigh it and they probably should have been watching them a bit closer, because the Libra insists that some of the moneyers were pretty good with sleight of hand, and suddenly, the 700 pounds of silver became short by an eighth of an ounce. Now, I don't know if there really was some sleight of hand here, or if the monks just failed to properly tear their scales. Our only record of this is in the Libra Eliensis which is firmly on the side of the monks, so we don't have any competing views. But given the behavior of the Normans thus far in the conquest, I would not be surprised if, upon seeing how quickly the monks were able to gather the required funds, William decided that there must be more money to be gained there. And so he ordered his men to manufacture a reason to be offended. Because, oh my God, was he ever offended by that missing eighth of an ounce. We're told that he was consumed with bitter fury, and raged that the monks might as well have just stolen from him. William promised them that he would have his revenge. And the record then implies that he set his men loose on Ely. And we're told that, quote, upheavals, depredations, and robberies raged, threatening devastation, there remained no place for peace or security, end quote. End quote. Subsequently, the monks, utterly immobilized by the pain inflicted and now renewed, finally entered a new agreement with him. They promised to add 300 marks to the previous 700, that is, to supply a thousand, in order to gain possession of his favor, along with the liberty of the place and the restoration of its estates. To this end, everything remaining in the church that was made of gold and silver to capital the image of saint mary with her child seated on a throne of marvelous workmanship which abbot alcega had made of gold and silver was broken up similarly the images of the holy virgins were despoiled of much ornament of gold and silver so that the sum of money could be paid but in spite of this they had no confidence about the hoped for settlement. End quote. Yeah, William didn't care if a gem was on an icon. He didn't care if silver was on a statue. He didn't care if gold was part of a relic. Just give it to me and I'll have my people smelt it down. The Lieber adds that Abbot Thurstan, overwhelmed with grief and stress from this whole affair, died a few short years later. You know what they say about snitches, Thurstan. Meanwhile, nestled deep in the fens to the north, Harroward gathered with his companions. This wasn't the first time he had to live rough out here. It wasn't the first time he had to rebuild a movement from the ground up. Ely had been a disaster, to be sure. But it wasn't fatal he still had a number of followers with him. More than when he had started his rebellion all those years back, when he and Martin had beheaded a room full of Norman knights. And he had Terfrida, who even the dusty monks of Ely had to admit was more than up to the task. I mean, hell, it was this kind of lifestyle that attracted her to him in the first place. And let's be honest, this kingdom was full of Normans who still had their heads. It was time to get to work. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to help us keep this project going, you can sign up for membership over at the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening.